Good morning. Well, if you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we'll continue our series, Conquerors, as we're walking through Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Did you know that over the last 2,000 years, there have been some estimated 70 million people who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ? 70 million people have been martyred for the name of Christ in the last 2,000 years. But did you furthermore know that 65% of those martyrs, some 45.5 million martyrs, have sacrificed their life for the name of Christ in the last century? We are living in a day where the Christian church is the most persecuted. And this is Christ's address to the second church in Revelation, the church Smyrna. Now, when I was a kid, I told you guys the story before, but my buddy and I were playing with fire, and we let it get out of hand. And I, we lived in West Texas, and there are these things called tumbleweeds. And you've seen tumbleweeds in cowboy movies. They're shrubs and bushes that are so dry, they just break off, and they're rolling across town. And if you take a branch and you snap it, it's so dry, it'll just break in half with a puff of smoke. Well, I was so bright that I picked up a tumbleweed and I said, here, this will smother it. And I put it on the fire that was already getting out of hand. The tumbleweed went up in flames and it began to spread. Who knew that a tumbleweed would cause the fire to erupt and spread? And who knew that persecution would cause the church to erupt and spread like wildfire? You know, I have a bottle of Listerine in my car, and I was rinsing my mouth with Listerine yesterday, and it was burning, so I was looking for something in my car to spit the Listerine into, and all I could find was a bottle of Sprite. And I spit the Listerine into the bottle of Sprite, and the bottle of Sprite erupted like a volcano <laughs> and began overflowing. Who knew? Listerine would cause Sprite to erupt and overflow. And who knew? Persecution would cause the church to erupt and overflow. So let's read. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray again. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to cause your word to ignite and produce a harvest of righteousness, of full, 100% consecration, consecration to you for your glory and for the hope of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story about a very prosperous pastor from the United States who was on a mission trip to a third world country. And he was conducting a pastor's conference to a group of pastors who were under persecution. And this sort of thing happens often, and actually it should be the pastors of the persecuted churches who give the conference for the pastors of the prosperous churches. And the pastor of the prosperous church from the States was having a conversation with one of these pastors in this third world country from a persecuted church. And they were just sharing their struggles. And the pastor of the Prosperous Church from the state said, yeah, we're really trying to figure out how to maximize our parking. And we're really trying to uh, figure out how to get a new sound system, you know, this like uh, $2 million sound system into our auditorium just because of the, of the growth and the numbers. And we're really trying to figure out how to bring on some extra staff. And we're really trying to figure out how to navigate the low seasons during the summer months and playoff season and the pastor of the persecuted church 
said, yeah, we're really trying to figure out how to navigate the political corruption, the sanitation issues, the lack of water, the lack of education, the fear that some of our church has because if, they, if they're caught with a Bible, it could mean their jobs, it could mean their lives, it could mean their freedom. And to this, the pastor of the prosperous church said, I will pray for you and your church and your persecution. And to that, the pastor of the persecuted church said, no, we will pray for you and your church and your prosperity. And that conversation very well could have played out a conversation of the angel or the pastor of the church in Smyrna and the angel or the pastor of the church in Laodicea. Uh, The church in Laodicea was prosperous, and Jesus said to them, you have a reputation that you are rich, but you are really poor. But he said to the church at Smyrna, you feel poor, but spiritually speaking, you are really rich. So let's take some lessons from the church at Smyrna so that we can be a wildfire. Of the seven churches that Jesus addresses, there's this pattern. Jesus, is in, Jesus encourages the church, and then he corrects the church, and then he encourages the church. Of these seven churches, there's only two churches that don't receive any correction, and that's the church at Philadelphia, the church that loved well, and the church in Smyrna, the church that was persecuted Severely, And of the seven churches, there was only one church that received no encouragement, and that was the church at Laodicea, the church who would today be putting on the church growth conferences. And he's, not that there's anything wrong with that, but in this particular case, he was saying, you're rich and wealthy, but spiritually you are poverty-stricken. And the church at Smyrna was blessed. They received no correction from the Lord. They only received encouragement from him. And so, let's continue to read. And to the angel in the church at Smyrna, the angel being the pastor of this particular local church, and to the angel of the church at Smyrna, let's talk about Smyrna. Smyrna was a very ancient city. It was... um, it, it began in about 3000 BC. Smyrna was known as the most beautiful city in all of Asia Minor. So last week in talking about the church at Ephesus, if somebody was going to Ephesus in the first century, it would be like going to New York City slash Vegas. It was a very exciting city in the metropolis of business and industry. But there was also a temple to the goddess of of sex with a thousand prostitutes, and they would publicly pay homage to this uh, goddess through these thousand prostitutes. And so going to Ephesus in the first century would have been like going to a mixture of New York City slash Las Vegas. But if somebody said, I'm going to Smyrna in the first century, well, that would have been like saying, I'm going to Hawaii. It was known for being an extremely beautiful city. In fact, it was called the most beautiful city in all of Asia Minor. It was known for being uh, rich in the arts, rich in science, rich in literature. In fact, uh, tradition has it that Homer was born in Smyrna. Not Homer Simpson, but Homer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. On one side of Smyrna was a coast, the beautiful view of the sea. And on the other side of Smyrna were beautiful green hills. And lined on these beautiful green hills were temples to the Roman gods. There was a temple where people could worship Zeus, a temple where people could worship Apollo and Aphrodite. Today, modern-day Smyrna is Izmir, which if you go to Turkey, you will fly into modern-day Izmir. In first century, Smyrna had a population of about 100,000 people, and for that day and age, that was massive. It's a bit smaller than Ephesus, but about 40 miles north. Today, when you fly into Izmir, Turkey, modern-day Smyrna, you'll see a booming 
city of about 4 million people, about the size of Los Angeles. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And why did the church at Smyrna have tribulation and poverty? Well, there was a saying in Rome that digressed, that progressed or digressed, depending on how you want to look at it. Those in the Roman Empire worshipped the spirit of Rome because Rome conquered the known world. And because of this empire, whereas Alexander the Great of Greek of Greece conquered the world in his day and created a common language. Rome conquered the world in their day and developed transportation systems. And as today, as social media and the internet makes our world smaller, that's what Alexander the Great of Greece and the Roman Empire subsequently to Greece did. They made the world smaller with Rome's roads. As the saying says, all roads lead to Rome. And as the Romans ruled with an iron fist, so they squashed all of the city-states that previously, before the Roman Empire, had all sorts of feuding between themselves. So to worship the Roman, the, the spirit of the Roman Empire was to worship the world being united and, and the world being at peace, as was the thought process. But that thought process digressed from worshiping the spirit of Rome to worshiping Rome. And there in Smyrna, they actually constructed a temple to Rome. So you could worship Zeus and Apollo, and you could worship Rome. And that thought process continued to digress from worshiping the spirit of Rome to worshiping Rome to worshiping the emperor of Rome. And in Smyrna, there was a temple, and you could walk into it, and you could burn incense and then worship the emperor of Rome by then saying, Caesar is Lord. Now, the Jews were somewhat grandfather clausd in. When the Romans took the Jews, when they took Jerusalem and Israel, they understood that they set up a puppet king and they issued their governor there and they roamed with an iron fist. They weren't going to mess with the, with the, with the Jews' religious system because they knew how devoted they were to worshiping their monotheistic God. And after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... And the church was created at first. The Romans just left the Christians alone, thinking it was just a, sort of another form of Judaism. It was all kind of confusing, so they just lumped it together. But there were Jews of the Sanhedrin who absolutely despised Christ, and they despised the name of Christ, and they despised the church. And they were very politically savvy, and they were very ambitious, and they began stirring up trouble for Christ and the Christians. And they let the Romans know this is not an offshoot of Judaism. This is totally different. They're not worshiping our God. They're worshiping another God, and they're calling him Jesus, and they're saying Jesus is Lord. So the rules began turning up a little bit throughout the Roman Empire, and especially, especially in Smyrna, because it was Smyrna that had the temple to Rome, and Smyrna that had the temple to the emperor of Rome. And they said to the Christians, you can worship your Lord Jesus, but you have to first and foremost acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And you can do this very simply. We're not saying you can't worship Jesus. Just acknowledge that Caesar is Lord because we don't want any division in the empire. We, we don't want any mutiny. We want no revolts, no revolutions. Just pay homage to Caesar. Burn a little incense. And when a little incense burns, take some of that ash, put it on the, put it on the altar to Caesar. And right then and there, we will give you a certificate. And that certificate will say that you're an outstanding citizen. And you honor the empire. And you honor Caesar. And you're no threat. But if you don't, then we're not going to give you this certificate that says you're an honorable and you're an outstanding citizen. 
And as a result, you're not going to be able to find work. You're not going to be able to make money. You're going to be shunned. And we might even throw you in prison. And we may even have you killed. And all of those things are exactly what happened. Interestingly, Smyrna was known for producing a spice called myrrh. And you remember when Jesus was born, the Magi, the wise men came. We don't know that there were three wise men, but there were three uh, gifts. So we deduced perhaps there were three Magi. But they came with three gifts. Do you recall the gifts? They were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that was prophetic because the gold spoke to the reality that a king is born in this manger in Bethlehem. The frankincense spoke to the reality that this baby that was born is also the high priest. And the myrrh, well, the myrrh was a prophecy of his death. Because this spice called myrrh was actually what the Jews used and people used in the ancient times to embalm bodies. This day and age, if a loved one passes away, sometimes here in the States, you can defer the funeral as much as a week or two weeks or, believe it or not, these days, even longer because of the embalming process that we have. They didn't have that sort of embalming process there. In fact, today in other parts of the world, if somebody passes away, perhaps in Mexico, the funeral is the very next day. Sometimes that same day because they don't have the same embalming process mechanisms and means and ideology that we have today. So in other parts of the world, when somebody passes away, the family better get there quick because the funeral is later that evening or tomorrow at the latest. So it was in the Middle East. So instead of uh, embalming these, these particular loved ones who passed away to such an extent, they covered them with spices. And this spice for embalming was called myrrh. And they took the spice and they began to crush it and they began to grind it. And it produced a fragrance that was sweet, but it was death. And so when Jesus was born, the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That myrrh was speaking to the fact that this baby was born to die. Interesting that the persecuted church produced myrrh. And they were the exporter of myrrh. Because they were being crushed, they were being persecuted, but this was creating a sweet smell, a sweet fragrance of worship and glory to Jesus Christ. And in their persecution and in their brokenness, Christ had no words of correction, only words of encouragement. And it was through this persecution that caused their light to shine, that caused them to erupt and caused them to overflow. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but Jesus goes on to say, but you are rich, you are wealthy. The world just looks at you and they think that you're just being stomped out underneath their heels but I look at you and I know that you are persevering and you're enduring and you're bringing glory to my name and then he says I not only know your tribulation and poverty I know something that you don't know I know that you're rich you're rich in my eyes and he says and I know the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not And who are those that say they are Jews and are not? Well, this is the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus put it. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see that the apostle Paul oftentimes ran into the synagogue of Satan. In Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, the Sanhedrin commanded that the apostles don't preach in the name of of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the, of, of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And this is why they persecuted the name of Christ. They were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. Acts chapter 13, verse 45 and 50 
in Acts 13, we read the record of the, Jewish's, the, the Jewish response to the church and the apostles preaching in Antioch. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Again, there's that word, jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reveling him. They were making fun of him. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. In Iconium, in Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 2 and 5 through 6, we read that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. And in verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding countryside. And once they got to Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, we read that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These guys were ambitious, weren't they? Look how aggressive and ambitious. Talk about committing idolatry. Their eyes were not on God. Their eyes were on these people, the apostles. And they persuaded the crowds and they stoned Paul. and They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And in Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabbi, of, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So you can see why Jesus would address these particular Jews, these aggressive Jews who are now in Smyrna. And Smyrna is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. We don't know much about the church at Smyrna. We conclude that probably the, the church at Smyrna began as a result of Paul's missionary journey, his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 19 when the church at Ephesus began. And then it just sort of broke out and spread and the church at Smyrna was created. We don't know much about them. But we know that there was a large Jewish population who once again were filled with jealousy and did everything they could to stir not only the people up, but also the Roman power. And they were politically savvy, and they were fiercely jealous, fiercely ambitious, and they succeeded in causing a great deal of persecution to come against the church. In fact... The Apostle John, who's writing the book of Revelation to uh, these seven churches, he's exiled on a, it's a penal colony, it's, a, it's an island that's about 16 miles long, about 10 miles wide, and it's pure, jagged volcano rock. And so here's this aged apostle, the last of the apostles, probably in his 90s, and he's on this rock doing hard labor, busting up rock. That's what they did. And it's there that the Lord gives him this vision. But before he's exiled to this penal colony, John disciples a pastor named Polycarp. And Polycarp is pastoring the church in Smyrna. And persecution comes against the church and persecution is threatened against Polycarp. And they tell Polycarp, listen, all you have to do is burn a little incense in the temple to Caesar. This is not from scripture, this is from history. All you have to do is burn a little incense to Caesar, put a little ash on the altar, say Caesar is Lord, you don't even have to mean it, and then go about your business of pastoring the church. And Polycarp said, 80 and 6 years I have served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? It was written about his martyrdom. That when news of his capture spread throughout the city, the excitement was so great, this hatred towards Polycarp and the Christian church that the Jews have stirred up, that the crowds were so great, they gathered whatever scraps of wood they could find in shops and baths to build the bonfire to burn him to death. 
And the Jews were so eager to see him killed that they brought more wood than anyone else, violating the Sabbath in the process. But Polycarp was unmoved by the threat of death. And he challenged his persecutors. Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but art art ignorant of the fire of the coming of judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. Tradition has it that they put Polycarp next to the stake in the middle of the bonfire and they were about to tie him up and he said, leave me as I am for he that give me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. And tradition has it that those who are watching him burn to death with such peace could not stand it so somebody lunged forward with a spear and killed him. Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. These Jews who stir up persecution against my name and against my church. And Jesus says, they're not really Jews. And why are they not Jews? Because in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, for no one is a Jews, for no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit of Christ, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but of God. And that's the synagogue of Satan. John MacArthur wrote of the synagogue of Satan, This is a chilling commentary on the apostasy of New Testament Judaism. Whatever lip service they still paid to the one true God was worthless after after they rejected his son as Messiah. Their religion was every bit as opposed to God's truth as the emperor worship and paganism that dominated Smyrna and their synagogue as spiritually vacant as the temples littering Smyrna. Wow. So Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, in verse 10, he gives them three incredibly comforting promises and instruction. First is this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days. And he says, don't fear. The first word of encouragement is Don't fear. Jesus presents himself to each of the churches in a manner that's consistent with the original vision that John had of him in Revelation chapter 1. Let's read about this vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, that's the church, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is his priestly responsibility. The hairs of his head are white like wool. This is his wisdom and righteousness, like snow. His eyes were like blazing fire, a furnace of fire. This is his piercing wisdom and omniscience. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This is his judgment. And his voice like the roar of many waters. This is his sheer power, authority, and gentleness. And this is the vision that John had of Jesus. And Jesus uses this vision of himself is an outline to present himself in specific ways to each of these churches for their specific needs. And to the church at Smyrna, let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus says, And to the angel, the pastor, of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. The words of the first and last. This clearly speaks to his title as God. Jesus is God. Jesus was not a great man who became God, a great man who became prophet, or a little less than God the Father. Jesus is 100% God. He is the first and the last. 
In fact, on Sunday nights and Sunday evenings, this evening, in fact, at 5.30, we're walking through various doctrines. And this evening, I encourage you to be here because we're walking through the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jesus is the first and the last a title only attributed to God. And if there's any confusion, that there's some uh, confusion as to whether this is referring to Jesus or God the Father, the words of the first and last who died and came to life again. And isn't it wonderful that Jesus would express himself to the church at Smyrna, the church that's being crushed? And an aroma, an incense of worship is coming up to God. That he would express himself as the living God who died and came back to life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have the keys to death. I died and I came back to life. So you don't have to fear death. Because just as the grave could not hold me, the grave cannot hold those who have placed their faith in me. As Jesus told Mary and Martha, do you believe I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And to the church at Smyrna, if you believe in me, though you were dead, yet shall you live. So do not fear, because I am the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. And if you are in me, death has no hold on you. And death can no longer hold you as it could hold me. So do not fear. And the second word of encouragement to them. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, some say that this 10 days is a literal 10 days, a very literal 10 days of intense persecution is coming against them. Others believe that this 10 days represents 10 10 seasons, 10, 10 increments of leadership in the Roman Empire. Uh... Others believe that this 10 days is just expressive of a very short increment of time. It's substantial, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a very short increment of time. I believe that the 10 days speaks to the reality that God is in control. He's the one with the stopwatch. And he says, let the 10 days begin, and he says, let the 10 day end. Nothing is going to touch your life that has not been filtered through my compassionate, loving hands. And I work all things together for the good. And I am for you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. The world is not spiraling out of control. The the, the egotistical emperors are not ruling the day. Everything is subject to my sovereignty. And I am working all things together for my glory and for your deepest joy. So these 10 days are limited. And I am with you. And so that begs the question, why do we have 10 days? Though these 10 days are in God's sovereign hand, why do we walk through these 10 days to begin with? The purpose for tribulation, the purpose for persecution for the church at Smyrna and the purpose for persecution in our life are the same because it all comes back to scripture. Uh, Let's just fly through about 10 various purposes for persecution in our life. The first is to glorify God, to bring God glory. And we read about this in the book of Daniel. When we are persecuted, people don't see us, they see Christ and they see his hand sustaining us. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we've no need to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if not, we will not bow down to you. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked into the furnace and through the furnace, the entire kingdom realized that God was walking with them. And they glorified God, and revival broke out as a result of that. One reason for our persecution is to bring God glory. When we talk about God on the mountaintop, people hear us. It's kind of distracting. They hear us. It's annoying. But when we praise God in persecution, people listen. And they want to know the same God that we have. Another purpose of persecution is to disciple us. 
We read this over and over. No one isolated place in Scripture, but in many places of Scripture, in Hebrews and James and Romans, God talks over and over that I, I, I'm, I'm discipling you, I'm equipping you into my image. There's another person for, another purpose for persecution, and that is to prevent us from causing sin. First Peter. Sometimes we go into persecution because God is preparing us, and he's protecting us. He's causing our vehicle to run out of gas, so to speak, before we go off a cliff. Another purpose for persecution is to keep us from pride. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. He says, it's keeping me humble, so I praise God for it. Another purpose for persecution is to build our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Talks about how our faith is built as we walk through this fire. Another purpose for persecution is to cause us to grow into the very image of Christ, as Paul talks about it, Romans 5, 3 through 5, that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, love, so that God will have his perfect work in our life. Another purpose for persecution is to teach us obedience. We read about this in many places in Scripture, Acts 9 and Philippians 4. Another purpose for persecution is to equip us to comfort others. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 1, that we are to comfort others with the same comfort in which we've been comforted in the midst of our tribulation and persecution. Another purpose for persecution is to prove that Christ lives within us. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. And another purpose for persecution is to witness to the angels, as mysterious as that is. But we read of it in Job 1.8 and Ephesians 3 and 1 Peter 1.12. There's a story that God gave an assignment to a man, and this man was happy to have an assignment because he wanted to bring God glory. And God told this passionate young man, See that boulder over there? Go push against it. So the man goes over and he pushes against the boulder. He pushes against that boulder for hours and then days. And that boulder never budges. He keeps pushing against that boulder. The days turn into weeks and the weeks, months, and the months turn into years. And he's pushing against the boulder. Finally, after years of pushing against the boulder, the man's exasperated and he gives up. He quits. And he says, God, you told me to push against that boulder. I've been pushing against it for years, and that boulder hasn't moved an inch. God said, I never told you to move the boulder. I told you to push against the boulder. Go down to the river. So the man goes down the river, and God says, take off your shirt. Look at yourself in the the water. And the man looks at himself in the reflection, and God said, when I first told you to push the boulder, your your arms looked like spaghetti noodles. You were weak. You were anemic. Your your legs were weak, but now look at you. You're bronzed. You're broad. You're strong. You're able. Now you're ready for your assignment. We don't always know why we go through persecution, but we know that God uses it to create Christ-likeness within us so that he can use us more for his glory and the hope of the world and our deepest joy. So God says, church at Smyrna, do not fear. Secondly, church at Smyrna, all things are in my sovereign hand. This persecution will last only 10 days. And church at Smyrna, the result of this persecution is going to be a crown of life. There are various crowns mentioned throughout Scripture. One such crown is the crown of life that we just read about. The crown of life is mentioned again in James chapter 1, verse 2. Another crown that's mentioned in Scripture is the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy and chapter 4. We also read about the crown of glory. And we also read about the incorruptible crown. And we also read about the crown of of rejoicing. And G- Jesus is promising the church at Smyrna the crown of life. 
Now, what do we do with these crowns? Because some people say, I don't care about a crown of righteousness or crown of life or crown of glory or crown of rejoicing. I just want to get into heaven, you know, even if it's just kind of barely. Well, first of all, nobody is going to barely get into heaven. If somebody barely gets into heaven, well, they're not going to get into heaven at all. Because the only people who will get into heaven are those who get into heaven boldly. Because we're clothed not in our earned righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So nobody's going to sort of barely get into heaven. But once we do get into heaven boldly because we're clothed in his righteousness, the beauty of these crowns, it's not that God gives us yet something else. Yes, he does. But the beauty of the crowns is that it's something that we see the, the 24 elders do. They fall on their face and they place their crowns before Jesus Christ and they worship him. It, mysteriously enhances our capacity to love God back and it enhances our capacity to worship Jesus Christ. It enhances our capacity to respond to his overwhelming faithfulness in our lives. You see, I have the gift of teaching. When we get to heaven, I'm not going to need that gift. I'm not going to have that gift. You're not going to need me to have that gift. You're just going to say, Shane, get out of the way because I see Christ right now. And all you're going to want to do is worship him. And we're not going to need Cassidy to exhort us to worship him because we're going to be caught up with the sheer presence of Christ's glory and his perfect love and his sense of faithfulness will overwhelm us. And you're going to have one desire, and that one desire is going to be to follow the example of the 24 elders who fall on their face and present their crowns to him. What is the crown? What's the, what's the purpose of a crown? It's going to enhance our ability to respond to God's faithfulness, to love God in return, to worship God for his pure love and faithfulness in our lives. So we have these three promises. Don't fear. The persecution is not random. It's purposeful. And all things must pass through my sovereign will. And I am good and I am loving you're not submitting yourself to Rome. You're not submitting yourself to the, uh, to, the, to, to, the, to the synagogue of Satan. You're submitting yourself to me. Trust me in this, and I'm with you. And there's a reward that's waiting for you, and it's a crown of life, and it's going to be worth it, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. And it's going to be worth it for us as well, Jesus says for us. You see, the reason that the church at Smyrna was so intensely persecuted, I believe, is because their faith was so intensely pure. And I believe that the church at Laodicea and the church at Ephesus, though very near in proximity, did not incur the same degree of persecution because they in some form or fashion capitulated. They compromised, they surrendered, which somehow mitigated the intensity of their persecution. The world persecutes pure faith. The world persecutes passion for Christ. That's the way the world is designed. And if you and I are not currently incurring some persecution, then we have to ask ourselves, has, have we as well, like the church at Laodicea, compromised? We read in scripture that all who wish to live a godly life will be persecuted. And if we are not persecuted in some form or fashion for following the leading of Christ and living out scripture in our context and committing to the body of Christ where we are called, if we are not in some form or fashion incurring persecution, have we as well capitulated? Have we surrendered? And is that why our persecution has been lessened and reduced? Because we've compromised with the world. The world is fine, just as of all things, Rome was fine with the church at Smyrna. Playing church, go play church. As kids, you play doctor and you play house, you grow up, play church. Rome didn't care. Satan didn't care. Play church all you want. Just burn a little incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Many did that. But the church at Smyrna couldn't. They couldn't. And so they didn't get that paper. 
and they lost their jobs, and they lost their houses. Some fleed. Most didn't have the means to flee. So they were intensely persecuted. But God was with them. And they had a revelation of Jesus Christ that was worth everything that they endured. And God gave them this grace and peace that was exemplified through Polycarp's martyrdom. And they were given a crown of life. Verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I don't believe this is a condition for our salvation. This is uh, a promise of our salvation. We don't persevere in order to be saved. We persevere because we are saved. One of the uh, revelations of our salvation, one of the proofs of our salvation is that like Polycarp, we persevere. All the way. What of those who don't persevere? As John, the author of Revelation, wrote in 1 John, they went out among us because they were never one of us. Their lack of perseverance was indication that they were never in Christ. But if we're truly in Christ, we will persevere. And we receive not only crown of life, but we receive the gift of persevering. In our lives today, have we capitulated? Have we burned the little incense to this world to lessen the suffering? You know, when I put that tumbleweed on that fire and it erupted, the takeaway for me was that dead things burn easily. And if we want to be a flame for Christ, we have to die to ourselves so the Spirit of Christ can consume us. And like Stephen, they don't see us. The world can do what they want, but they will see Christ in us. Or like the apostles, they'll look at us and say, there's an anointing about you that sure reminds me of Jesus. And that's not you, because I knew you in high school. I I knew you ten years ago. I knew you two years ago and. This is different. Who is this? It's Christ shining through us. Because as Paul said in Galatians, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I no longer live. For to be crucified is to, for Christ to shine through me. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that I live in the body is by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself up for me. Would you stand with me, please? The church of Smyrna has taken place today. You know, you would think that the most persecuted areas in the entire world would be in Muslim-dominated regions of the world, and you would be right, but you might be surprised to know that the church is spreading like wildfire in these Muslim-dominated areas. Did you know that more than 6,000 new churches have been planted among Muslims in 18 different countries? Here, we're talking about this decade. Hundreds of Former sheiks and imams are now Christ followers and boldly leading great movements. Forty-five different unreached Muslim majority people groups who a few years ago had no access to God's word now have more than 3,000 new churches among them. This is largely amongst Muslims in Africa. Thousands of former Muslims are experiencing the loss of possessions, homes, and loved ones. But they are continuing to serve Jesus. Multiple Muslim communities are seeing the dramatic changes in nearby communities and insisting that someone must bring these changes to their communities. More than 350 different ministers are working together to achieve these outcomes. There's stories of of a dad and a son being beheaded because they became Christians and instead of, and and this is in the Middle East, and instead of uh, Christianity being stomped out of these regions, the entire village comes to Christ. And there's now churches in these areas. Multiple cases of entire mosques 
are coming to faith. Thousands of ordinary men and women being used by God to achieve seemingly impossible outcomes. Tens of thousands of Muslims, of Muslim background Christians, are becoming dedicated to intercede and fast and pray for other Muslim villages. Muslim people groups that never had even one church among them are now have more than 50 churches planted. Former sheiks, imams, militant Islamists are making up 20% of more of the new Christian leaders in Muslim regions. It's just amazing. Again, who would think you put persecution on a church and it erupts and it spreads? As it's been all throughout history, so it is today. The church thrives under persecution, but the church just stagnates and stalls out under comforts and conveniences and complacencies. And if we're not incurring persecution for our faith, it's not because we live in Fort Worth, Texas. I believe it's because we've in some way compromised with the world. Just a little pinch of ash from some incense to the world here. And we'll go on and play church. But it's dead things that burn. It's dead things that are ignited. Jim Elliott, martyr to Ecuador, said, I desire not a long life, but a full one, like yours, Lord Jesus. But flame is often transient, short-lived. Canst thou bear that, my soul, short life? Ah, but in me dwells the spirit of the great short-lived. For I desire not a long life, but a full one. For blood only has value as it flows before thine altar. The Lord might call some of us to be burned at the stake or beheaded. I don't know. Or to be exiled. Or like the church at Smyrna, to lose your job because of some stand for Christ. Or to lose relationships because of some stand for Christ. But we have to stand for Christ. And what we seem to lose will be counted again because God's resurrection power will touch it. And so let me just conclude just by asking you, Have you capitulated or are you entirely surrendered to Christ? And so I want to invite you to use this stage as an altar and present your body a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, help us to walk in the example of the church at Smyrna and not do anything that would violate a conscience that's sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Because the church of Smyrna was not persecuted for what they did. They could have gone on playing church. They were persecuted for what they didn't do. They didn't compromise. We pray that there would be no compromise in our faith. This morning we want to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, the altars are open.